You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Good day, everybody. Good morning. If you're here in Saskatchewan with me or anywhere west, good afternoon. If you are east of me, thank you for joining us on this ride today. I'll be filling in for Evan for the rest of the week, and then I think that's it. That's it for me for the summer, unless uh, something else comes up. Speaking of summer, one of the top stories, as you are all aware of this summer, has been travel. Polls have shown that people have been turned off by air travel of late, and no surprise really because of everything that has been happening in the skies and on the, well, mostly on the ground really. Um, But in late June, I just want to share a personal story first before, before getting into the reason we're talking about this today. In late June, my sister in law flew into Saskatchewan for a visit from Toronto. The airport was chaos, at Pearson Airport, that is. And despite arriving there more than two hours early, she ended up running to her gate. But her flight was on time and her bag was waiting for her when she touched down here in Regina. Well, five days later, as she was preparing her things to head to the airport, just a few hours before her flight was set to take off, she received a text message from Air Canada. The text message informed her that her flight had been canceled due to, quote, crew constraints. There was no number for her to call, no information about her flight being rebooked, just a notification that her flight had been canceled. This was obviously stressful given that she had to be back in Toronto the following morning for work. Well, quite remarkably, she managed to get someone on the phone from Air Canada pretty quickly. She explained that she had to get back to Toronto for work and the Air Canada employee gave her three options. Air Canada could issue my sister-in-law a refund for the cost of her ticket. Obviously not a viable option for her because she needed to get home and flying WestJet that last minute would have cost an arm and a leg. Option two, in lieu of her direct flight from Regina to Toronto being canceled, Air Canada said that they could fly her out of Regina at six o'clock the next morning, go west to Vancouver, then east to Toronto, getting in at four o'clock the next afternoon still missing her workday and spending the entire day at airports or in the air. Option three, they could fly her out at six o'clock the next morning. Again, let's not forget that this means getting to the airport at four o'clock in the morning. And then go west to Calgary, have a ridiculously long layover and get into Toronto at 5.30 the following morning. Obviously, none of these were tenable options. My sister-in-law pressed the agent to keep looking for the next available direct flight. And about five minutes later, the agent said, actually, there is a direct flight available tomorrow morning at 10.30. My sister-in-law took it, then asked about compensation, given she'd still be missing a day of work. The agent informed her that she'd have to file a claim for compensation online. And she did. She's still waiting to hear back. But if the recent experience of a man in a similar situation is any indication it is looking unlikely that there will be compensation for my sister-in-law as well as the droves of other passengers that have no doubt been facing the same situation in recent weeks and months. But first, a little refresher on what it's been like to be an air traveler the last few months. When I was in Pearson at the end of April, the line to get through security was unlike anything I'd ever seen over the countless trips through the airport over the last 
two decades. It was clear that this was a staffing issue as only a fraction of the usual security lines were open. It was frustrating then to hear Transportation Minister Omar Al-Gabra say this the following month. There's issue also of new travelers who have not traveled for very long that takes taking out the laptop, taking out the, the fluids, all that adds 10 seconds here, 15 seconds there. Uh, the issues of uh, training, the issue of preparing the travelers. Oh boy, did that cause an uproar. Staff at Pearson invited the media to remind travelers of how they can make those security lines move more quickly. The main one is really the liquids, gels, and aerosols. Um, uh, We all travel with this kind of item in our carry-ons that we need, and there is a regulation for a volume restriction. You can only have 100 milliliters per container. Again, just a reminder that when I was going through Pearson, I believe that there were two security lines open out of the usual, oh gosh, I don't know, eight, ten that they would usually have. So again, we are reminded, pull out your laptop, have your boarding pass handy. Don't put anything like ammunition, torch lighters, knives, or nunchucks in your carry-on luggage. Minister Elgaber assured travelers that security personnel were being hired and the situation was getting sorted out. So I'm confident that work is happening as we speak. We're going to see improvement moving forward and, and we need to be ready for the summer season to make sure that uh, everything is flowing as smoothly as possible. Well, it doesn't appear that many airlines were prepared for the summer season because then there was the issue of delayed flights and cancelled flights. And let's not forget about all the lost baggage. Here's CTV Toronto's Janice Golding reporting from the baggage waiting area at Pearson's Terminal 1 in June. Full of weary, frustrated passengers. It looks like a mess in here and I just hope they can find mine. Searching in many cases fruitlessly for their luggage. Yesterday, six hours here. Nobody answered nothing, nothing. It's incredible. And I was here for four and a half hours yesterday. I need to be told that my luggage is somewhere in the airport, but they have no idea where. Well, now get this. The Globe and Mail is reporting that a man named Ryan Farrell, who, like my sister-in-law, was surprised to learn less than four hours before his departure that his flight from Yellowknife, from Yellowknife to Calgary had been cancelled, will not be getting the compensation he sought, even though the Canadian Transportation Agency's air passenger protection regulations state that airlines must pay up to $1,000 in compensation for cancellations or significant delays that stem from reasons within the carrier's control when the notification comes 14 days or less before departure. Well, surely the situation of the man in the Globe story who like my sister-in-law, was told his flight had been cancelled due to so-called crew constraints, would fall under this category. Surely, crew constraints would be seen as a reason within the carrier's control, but allow. According to the Globe story, an email sent to the passenger six weeks after his cancelled flight stated, quote, Since your Air Canada flight was delayed slash cancelled due to crew constraints resulting from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our operations, the compensation you are requesting does not apply because the delay slash cancellation was caused by a safety-related issue. How the issue of allowing passengers to book flights, even though your airline has inadequate staffing, is seen as a safety issue and not an issue within the carrier's control is beyond me. According to the Globe and Mail, in a memo sent out at the end of last year, Air Canada instructed its employees to classify flight cancellations caused by staff shortages as a, quote, safety problem. 
which would then exclude travelers from compensation under federal regulations. That policy remains in place. The directive said that the measure would be temporary, but as of the end of July, again, it remained in place. How in the hell can this be allowed to happen? Well, coming up after the break, we are going to speak with a former airline executive for some insight. I will ask him whether Air Canada is likely to get away from this, whether there is a loophole in this legislation uh, that calls for compensation that would allow them to get away with this. And I also want to ask him what you should do if you are in a similar situation, because no doubt, I mean, this is one person who just got this response from Air Canada six weeks after filing his claim. There's no doubt that many, many more people will likely be getting the same response. And maybe you're one of those people. After I talk to the uh, former airline executive, I want to take it to the phone lines, ask you, what has your situation been? Are you avoiding airports altogether? Uh, I asked my sister-in-law this morning if she'd received any word back about her compensation claim. No, she had not yet, but it's only been about four weeks for her, a little more than four weeks. So she'll probably be getting the similar response to that gentleman in the Globe and Mail story in the next couple of weeks. We've got a lot more, of course, coming up in the show as well. Uh, You may have heard about the state of emergency that was declared over the weekend in Newfoundland uh, due to uh, a couple of wildfires that are out of control and, and seem to be merging together. We will be speaking with Newfoundland Premier Andrew Fury. Also, what about uh, that that endorsement that Stephen Harper gave to Pierre Poiliev? Did it help him? No, turns out it didn't help him. And it might have actually even hurt Poiliev, that endorsement. We're going to be speaking with Nick Nanos about that coming up in the next hour. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Evan Solomon Show. And if you want to listen back to the show or catch an interview you may have missed, listen to the Evan Solomon Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Much more coming up after the break. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, thanks for listening. If you were listening to the first segment of the show, you heard me talking about a gentleman who had his flight canceled with less than four hours notice. He was supposed to be flying from Yellowknife to Calgary in mid-June. Had his flight canceled due to quote-unquote crew constraints. And he filed uh, he filed uh, an application for compensation online, as he was instructed to do. And six weeks later, lo and behold, he was told that since your Air Canada flight was delayed or canceled due to crew constraints resulting from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our operations, the compensation you are requesting does not apply because the delay or cancellation was caused by a safety-related issue. For me, this sounds completely bonkers. Crew constraints safety related issues for me i i like i just i can't wrap my head around how ill ill conceived planning on an airline's part apparently uh leads to safety issues that means that they don't need to compensate the traveler well here to break this down for us is former chief operating officer at air canada duncan d duncan thanks so much for taking the time today thanks for having me tamara Am I like justified in having my mind blown like this, or is is this something reasonable on Air Canada's part? Look, I think that on the face of it, absolutely, this is bonkers, and you are absolutely justified in having your mind blown by this, and so are listeners 
for having their minds blown by this because it's a situation that is absolutely aggravating for any traveler who faces this type of delay or cancellation. But clearly, airlines have to abide by passenger rights rules, which are enforced by the Canada Transportation Agency, which is a government agency. And, you know, the rules that are in place are there to protect the travelers, but also to make it clear to airlines what they are responsible for, not just in terms of refunds, but in this case, they're talking about compensation over over and above the refund. So I think that the situation is a very complicated one, and I'm hoping that we get a chance to talk about a little bit more of that today. Yeah, so so tell me a little bit about the, the Canadian Transportation Agency's Air Passenger Protection Regulations and and what what they say what those regulations say in terms of when passengers need to be compensated because when i like my reading of of those regulations this morning it seems pretty clear that if you know if you're if you are told that your flight is being canceled you know 14 days or less before your flight and uh this is due to you know the the airline something that the airline did I mean, would crew constraints not fall under that? How do they make the claim that this is a safety issue? Look, it's an absolute legitimate question, and it's a question that travelers uh, have every right to ask. And so uh, we're talking about pre-September rules and post-September rules. So pre-September, which we're in now, which obviously covers the situation described in the article, airlines are not required to provide compensation for travel that is disrupted for situations outside their control. So what does that mean? That means things like weather, government regulations, um, government failures. And in this case, if anybody has been paying attention to what's been going on in Canada since about April, what we've seen are tremendous government service failures at the airports, primarily at security, which is the responsibility of CATSA, and at international arrivals, which is the responsibility of the Canada Border Services Agency, CBSA. And so in this case, when we're talking about safety-related crew constraints, that basically means crews are not, the airline is not able to simply tell crews to continue operating flight beyond their duty day. So a duty day is what the government says is a safe number of hours a crew can operate any given day in any given month. And so what we've seen in Canada since April has been a tremendous amount of disruption at the airports. Last Friday, for example, the president of the Toronto Airport Authority came out and said that in the last few months, the rolling uh, four-week averages showed that 60 flights every week were holding off-gate, so not at the terminal, but somewhere off the terminal, waiting to be allowed to come to the terminal to offload their travelers because the customs halls were so full. So Mm. whose responsibility is that? If a customs Mm. hall is so full, things are proceeding so slowly that things cannot proceed normally, and aircraft are being told to stay off the property of the airport until they can come in and offload their travelers, who's responsible for that? So clearly in a case like that, you you don't just have travelers who are inconvenienced, you have aircraft that are being held off gate for two to three hours, crews that are being held off gate two to three hours and accumulating the amount of time that they're allowed to work every single day. So when those Mm -hmm. crews exceed the number of hours they can work on a given day, the next flight they're going to operate is also impacted. And the next flight could be delayed or it could be canceled. So in this case, it becomes truly a safety issue because you can't simply tell the crew operate beyond the day that you're beyond the duty day that you've been authorized. 
So we're, for anyone joining us now, we're, we're speaking with Duncan D. He's the former chief operating officer at Air Canada. Uh, Mr. D, the, uh, from what I understand from this Globe and Mail article, Air Canada put out a directive, a memo to, to their employees at the end of last year, uh, basically telling their employees that, um, you know, if if uh, flight is canceled due to crew constraints, site safety issues so that we don't need to pay compensation. Does crew constraints always mean that crew was held up for something outside of the airline's control? Like like what you're describing, like something at CBSA, for example? Definitely not 100% of the time. But here again, I think the government plays a significant role. One of the things that's been reported in the in the media has been that uh, pilots have been waiting upwards of a year to get their uh, medical clearances from Transport Canada when those clearances used to take three to four weeks. And so if there are crew constraints, which basically means not enough crews to operate a flight, then, you know, the government there even plays a significant role. But, you know, if we go back to safety, the safety, um, when it's when you're talking about crew availability, crew constraints, almost always has to do with the number of hours a crew is allowed to operate under regulation and under contract. Mm-hmm. So when 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 the airline talks about safety-related crew constraints, that basically means that they are not in a position to draft, this, that, that, that's the actual term, to draft crews to work a flight that exceeds the, the mandatory limits that are imposed to, to operate that flight safely. Mm-hmm. We, we know that Air Canada canceled a whole bunch of flights. Uh, is that a month or two ago that they announced they'd be canceling a bunch of flights because, you know, basically they, they I guess, didn't have the staff to, to take care of them. But what do you see in the situation with, with Air Canada and other airlines right now? Are they still understaffed? Are airlines booking more flights than they, than they have the capacity to, to actually fill? From a staff, Tamara, that's a great, great, great observation. Um, Air Canada about a month ago canceled 9,500, almost 10,000 flights for the months of July and August. And so that's a huge number of cancellations during the summer travel peak. And so what Air Canada announced at the same time was that they actually retained 97% of their pre-pandemic workforce to operate less than 80% of their pre-pandemic schedule. So in fact, they built in a quite a big buffer. So the issue about crew and employee um, limitations and shortages at at least Air Canada and also at WestJet seems to be a little bit misunderstood. What's happened uh, in Canada since about April, so over four months now, is you've had these service failures at the airports right across the country, but primarily Toronto and Montreal, which have impacted the ability of airlines to operate their normal planned schedule. So what, Mm -hmm. what we talked about earlier Airline crews are a finite resource. They can't work 24 hours a day. There's a limit to the number of hours they can work every single day and cumulatively every single month. When you've got such significant delays like we've seen in Canada, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported that the top two delayed airports uh, from May to July were both Pearson and Montreal airports, the two Mm -hmm. most important airports in the country. When that happens, you've basically got a situation that is outside an airline's control. Yeah. Duncan D, we have to end it there. Uh, Duncan, thank you very much for your time. He's the f- former chief operating officer at Air Canada. I want to turn this topic over now to you, the listeners. 
have you been avoiding air trial what, air travel what have your experiences been like have you maybe uh been denied compensation and, and do you think you were wrong done by or do you understand what what uh duncan has just walked us through with this uh give us a call 1-855-633-1010 as always you can send us a text message at 71010 but i really want to hear your voice again thank you duncan d for joining us i'm tamara cherry in for evan solomon Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, thanks for having me today and for the rest of the week. I am Tamara Cherry coming at you from Regina, Saskatchewan. Well, for the first part of this show, we've been talking about problems with flying, as if we haven't talked about that already, but we're talking about this today because the Globe and Mail was reporting today that a passenger who had his flight canceled at the last minute, less than four hours before he was expected to leave, from Yellowknife to Calgary, was notified six weeks later that even though this cancellation was due to, quote, crew constraints, that he would not be receiving compensation as this was a safety-related issue. Well, I was pretty upset about this. I don't, I cannot see how crew constraints don't equal, you know, ill-conceived plans on the airline's part. But we just had former chief operating officer at Air Canada, Duncan D join us, who made some sense of it for me. He he was pointing out that, um, you know, it, it doesn't all come down to planning on the part of Air Canada, that many times uh, Air Canada staff cannot work their next flight because they've been held up sitting on the tarmac, for example, because there, there is a backlog at customs because of problems with Canada Border Service Agency or problems with security and on and on and on. So I want to hear from you, one 855 or send me a text message at 71010. Are you fed up with air travel? Do you think that, do you think this makes sense? Like we shouldn't be getting compensation for those sorts of things from the airlines. Maybe we should be getting compensated by the federal government if that's whose fault it is. But man, just the thought of having to jump through those hoops to get that sort of compensation just makes my head spin anymore, even more. Let's go right to the phone lines. They are clogging up. Adam, you're calling from Calgary. What's your thoughts on this? Well, I, I, the federal government must have thought that they were finally rid of the of the problems with Air Canada, and it's just once again come back to bite them in the butt. They, they get blamed for everything, and the oh, well, one last thing: Saskatoon rules. Regina. No, don't even. Anyways. Ah, I don't want to have to cut you off. We're having a good conversation. <laughs> I know. I just had to get that in Saskatoon. There Come on, man. We don't got to go there. No, but no, but you're right. Okay, so yeah, Air Canada bailed out, or uh, the federal government bailed out Air Canada big time. I, I believe that they got the most money of any airline when it came no, to bail. No, but they out. used to own Air Canada, and they would get blamed for everything. Right. So they finally right. sold it, thinking, okay, we're finally rid of them. They they are like, I don't know, um, they're like ivy that wraps itself around the federal government and in trouble. They just, every time something goes wrong at Air Canada, the federal government gets blamed. And you heard just from the guy now, oh, it's not our fault, it's the federal government's fault. <laughs> and on and on it goes. All right, Cal Adam calling from Calgary, thanks for that. And Regina is better than Saskatoon. Lynn, you're calling from Mississauga. Uh, what are your thoughts on this issue? Hi. Um, 
Well, I, I was a flight attendant for many years, not with Air Canada, and it is, that, is, that does happen. The crew, the, like the, the timing for the crew, it's not just Air Canada. So something that would happen would be you could even be in Europe, and if they don't tell you, if you get to the airport and you're already at the airport and then they're telling you like, that your flight's going to be delayed and you're going to go over your duty day with a projected flight time of 10 hours, it just messes everything up. So crews are stuck everywhere waiting so that does happen. But another thing that I heard was happening, and that just to throw a wrench into it, is that the security passes, and I only know for, air, for flight attendants, that you um, have to renew every five years. They're pretty intense security. They mm-hmm. were not happening. That, that was not happening during COVID. So now people have to go renew their passes, and there's like a huge long backlog mm. of months even before they can get their passes renewed. So you can't fly. You can't work Jeez. when you ha- don't have the security pass. So, so can, I mean, you can't I, work at all without security pass, or you just can't get through security no, like security in an expedited what, way. No, the security pass is what allows you to go behind the like behind the lines. The okay. security pass is what you have to show when you're like in Europe, because okay. it's that kind of security. So it's a pretty intense and secure. It's a pretty tense procedure, as you understand. Of course. But yeah. that is part of the problem. People are being told you have to wait till like uh, my girlfriend just told me she's been told she has to wait till January. Really? <laughs> I mean, clearly they're going to try to rush her through, but that's what's happening. So if you have that, so is she scheduled like for that, flights in the meantime, Lynn? Is she, no, she, is she just supposed would to be not flying work. before then? She can't fly without wow. security pass. I mean, they, that's I really guess, interesting. Yeah, she, would that come she, from? Would that come from CATSA or where? Where would that come it from? It comes from the federal government. It's a, it's like a, it's a, called a rake, like an R A I C pass. It's the one where you mm-hmm. have an eye scan, so yep. it allows you to go behind, like you're actually on the airport, like behind the lines. So it's what okay. allows you, like you're. It's, I guess it's assuming that everyone who passes and has this that you're, you're not a security risk, but it's for okay. the whole world. So yeah, no kidding. That, so if those are not being updated quickly or quickly enough, then people can't fly, and you can't have it. I mean, they might give you an extension for a little bit, she said, but you can't. Mm-hmm. You can't just pretend that you don't need it. You don't want to be. No, that, that's people. really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, uh, Duncan D was telling us in our last segment that, like, he was pointing to problems at the border, CBSA, and flights being held on the tarmac and and therefore being delayed. But he was also talking about cats and the security problems. And I wanted to ask him how that could affect, um, you know, airline employees. But what you're saying now sort of adds, like you said, yeah. another wrench into it. And maybe we need to be having Omar Al-Gabra on the show if he'll join us tomorrow to talk about this. Lynn, I got to end it there okay, just because there's a lot of other people Bye. waiting, but thanks for Bye. the insight. I appreciate it. Samantha, you're calling from Ottawa. Uh, what's your experience been? Uh, it's been pretty bad. So I flew out on business uh, a month and a half ago, and we had all of our luggage lost before going on a trade show. So we lost, we figured, about 20 grand worth of sales because of that. No. And then our flights were canceled not once, but twice due to the same reason everybody's getting. And we've been denied compensation uh, for the flights, and we are waiting to hear still on the luggage, which took three weeks to get back to us. Oh, and gosh. it's been brutal. It's been absolutely brutal, so, and I still have to fly So you got business. your luggage back after three weeks, and you're waiting to hear on compensation? Yes, because we had to buy stuff, right? Like we had some of the things we couldn't replace because it was our entire trade show booth, but we at least needed clothes to wear. And so we figured it was about between that and also hotels when they canceled our flight because our flight was delayed by 19 hours in total. And they had to fly Mm. us American was the only way to get us out of Chicago because flights were not leaving Toronto. However, I will say 
Toronto security has never been faster. Customs really? incredibly fast. Deboarding was incredibly fast. And, you know, they keep blaming the federal government on this. And you know what? The federal government stepped up. They still haven't. Wow. So interesting, interesting insight. I hope you get the compensation you're after. And oh, but I imagine it won't live up to what you lost, not not being able to sell your stuff at the trade show and put your stuff on 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 display. Samantha, thank you so much. Uh, on to Chris in Kitchener. Chris, uh, we've only got a minute or so left, but uh, what are your thoughts on this? Um, not much. I've kind of the same. The other two people have more of experience with the flights. I'm kind of sick of hearing these excuses from these multi-billion dollar organizations. Um, like just saying, oh, other countries are having it too, and blaming a... It makes me sick. I run a small painting business. I can't... If I have a deficiency, I can't go to the customer while other painters screw up too, so you just got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. it. It's kind of getting really pathetic, and I don't know... It, it's yeah, we, we don't like hearing other people complaining when 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 we're we're the ones dealing with the problems too. Uh, Jack yeah. in Cambridge, really quickly, we've got thirty seconds for you here. Jack, what's your thoughts? Oh, thanks for taking my call. My thought is that it's very opportunistic, and you know, if they're canceling flights, if I heard you correctly, they're they're taking people's money, canceling because of safety issues that they cause themselves by not having people available. And then someone comes on and says 97% of the staff is still there. Like, what is going on? It seems opportunistic. And they get well, the well, the chief flight. operating, the former chief operating officer for Air Canada, Duncan D, told us in the previous segment that it, that they do have a lot of staff, but that they're running into to some problems that are outside of their control, that are in the control of the federal government, such as problems at the border, offloading flights, such as security, that sort of thing. So there's there's just a, a huge mess, and I wish that they would all get it figured out. Jack, Chris, uh, everybody who called, thank you very much for your calls on this. Lots of texts that I didn't have a chance to get to, but thank you for sending in your messages. Coming up after the break, we're going to Newfoundland and Labrador, speaking with Premier Andrew Fury about a state of emergency that was declared there over the weekend as a, as a result of what the Premier called the worst wildfire situation in the province since 1961. That's coming up after the break. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello and thanks for joining us. Thanks for being such a wonderful audience today. Lots of great calls in the last segment. Well, listen, hearing news over the weekend about out of control fires uh, in this country, you might expect to have been hearing about something on the West Coast, which unfortunately we have become accustomed to over the last couple of years. Well, in fact, today we're talking about Newfoundland, two massive forest fires burning in central Newfoundland uh, prompted Newfoundland and Labrador to put a state of emergency in place over the weekend. Joining us now is Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Fury. Premier Fury, thanks so much for taking the time. I know it's a hectic time for you. How are you holding up? Uh, We're holding up right. uh, Okay, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we'll, we'll get through it. So, Premier Fury, just give us some background on this. I, I understand when you were giving your briefing yesterday that a lot had changed in the previous 36 hours. Tell me about that. Sure. So on Saturday, there was a distinct change in the weather patterns 
uh, such that this massive fire, 130 kilometers uh, square kilometers, was attempting to head in a different direction. So the smoke was uh, going to significantly impact uh, communities of Bishop Falls and Grand Falls, Windsor. The fire itself was not uh, anticipated to head in that direct, uh, you know, to have a direct impact on those communities with flames, uh, but the soot, the smoke, and the embers were going to cause significant uh, issues. So we took uh, the definitive immediate action to declare a state of emergency and to begin uh, a triage uh, uh, approach uh, to evacuating medical patients and uh, put out a heightened level of alert for citizens of that area uh, to be ready to evacuate uh, should it be required. Now, you also said in your update yesterday that, I, I mean, just you just said there 130 square kilometers. That is absolutely massive. You said yesterday that these were two fires that were operating separately, basically 50-50, but that they looked like they were merging together. Has that happened or, or is, it, is it still thought to, to be in the near future? Well, the weather cooperated uh, yesterday more than we were anticipating. Uh, the two fires remain separated. They're only separated, uh, to my understanding, by about two to three miles. Uh, so there is still the possibility that they will merge. Uh, but the weather behaved itself a bit better yesterday than we uh, were expecting. So the two fires uh, stay uh, remain separate. Um, and uh, we're hopeful that the weather will uh, behave itself and uh, we'll have a, a good outcome here. For those of us who are unfamiliar with the the geographic area that you're referring to, can you paint a picture for us? How many people live in this area? How many people are potentially being impacted by this state of emergency? Sure. So uh, there's it's central Newfoundland, the island portion of the province. Uh, there are uh, two main communities, uh, several thousand people, uh, that would be directly impacted by the smoke uh, from these these fires, uh, the Grand Falls, Windsor, and Bishop Falls. In addition, uh, there's a high, so that's on the, uh, if you're picturing the island, it's in the, it's in the center and towards the north uh, on the Trans-Canada Highway. But then there's a connection uh, from the Trans-Canada Highway heading directly south to an area called the Conagra Peninsula, which has communities like Harbour Breton, Hermitage and others. Uh, that uh, that's where the fire is, right over the highway that connects uh, the north and south. Um, so we have, in addition to the direct smoke impacts that we have for uh, what I'm calling the more northern uh, central communities of Grand Falls, Windsor, and Bishop Falls, uh, the southern communities uh, are, are cut off completely from supply and transport. Uh, so uh, th- that's the way that this fire is impacting uh, two uh, different sets of communities. We're speaking with Andrew Fury, Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. And Premier Fury, this is—is is it fair to say this is not something that that your your government is necessarily used to dealing with a fire on this scale? Is that fair? Yeah, that's certainly fair. I mean, we've uh, had large uh, forest fires in Labrador, the uh, mainland portion of the island uh, of the province, uh, but it's uh, generally around places that are not inhabited. Uh, this is the largest uh, fire uh, on the island portion of the province since 1961. And so we are not used uh, to dealing with forest fires, as you mentioned at the outset in this show, in the introduction here, uh, that, you know, they would, uh, people on, uh, unfortunately on the West Coast would be used to dealing with. That said, we, uh, we have over the years uh, had our fire experts uh, travel to the West Coast uh, to uh, not only to help, but to be educated in an approach to fire mitigation and suppression. And we're very fortunate to have uh, had those learned skills uh, back on the island now being applied here. 
So what what sort of lessons have are you are you taking from the West Coast fires? Uh, so the, uh, as I understand it from talking to the fire experts uh, here on the ground, um, things like controlled burns, um, we have also had uh, uh, the ability to lean on people from uh, the, the kind people from Quebec and the Quebec government uh, who are are providing aircraft and, and the level of coordination on the aircraft using, uh, if you can imagine it, it's a multi-tiered uh, approach where one level of aircraft directs the others. Uh, um, so those are some of the lessons that have been learned and adapted here uh, at home uh, from across the country. And I understand your public safety minister, John Hogan, was reaching out to the federal public safety minister, Bill Blair. What what sort of uh, assistance are you getting from the federal level? Yeah, of course. Uh, we've been uh, quite uh, lucky to have a collaborative relationship with the federal government. Uh, I've reached out to Minister LeBlanc right away. Of course, we have our own ministers, O'Regan and Hutchings here, who have been uh, incredibly helpful as well. Uh, minister Hogan reached out to Minister Blair, and, uh, and uh, there was an immediate response as the fire appeared to be escalating, and we've had uh, a, um, we've had an immediate response with uh, Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, they're on the ground here now helping at command center, helping coordinate uh, the uh, triage uh, operations and evacuations of, uh, of medical patients who happen not to be in facilities, for example. So people who have chronic lung conditions or who have ambulatory issues who are at home who wouldn't be able to just to pick up and leave at the, at the, at the last second. So we're quite grateful for uh, for the support there. Is there anything more that your government needs right now or, or any other messages that you'd like to get out to, to your residents or, or residents of Canada? Uh, no, we're very uh, thankful for the uh, for all the support uh, that people across the country have shown, um, especially the, uh, the people of Quebec. They've uh, lent, uh, for, lent us four water bombers, I, th- I believe, and and a couple of other aircraft, and we're incredibly grateful for that. And that's uh, that's helping significantly. Uh, of course, Minister Blair uh, and uh, the federal government have been there to support us, as mentioned in the previous answer, with the Canadian Armed Forces and operational support. Uh, so we're very grateful for all the support across the country uh, and for the people at home. I know it's a it's an anxious uh, moment. Uh, I know it's stressful. Uh, the weather is cooperating right now, so people are in limbo, as you can imagine. Um, But please uh, don't take it lightly, but don't panic either. Just be ready uh, if the situation changes, and and we'll keep you updated regularly. Wonderful. Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Andrew Fury, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, We'll all be thinking of you and and your government and your your residents in the days to come, hoping for lots of rain and uh, wind that sends these flames in the right direction. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Thank you. Of course. Well, wow. uh, coming up after the break, you know, it, one one thing I, I just want to say about that that interview, it is nice to hear that uh, we're talking, I mean, it's not, if there's a silver lining, um, that hopefully we won't be talking about people losing their homes in this. Uh, there might be some smoke damage and, and hopefully all the vulnerable people have gotten out that could be uh, adversely affected by that smoke. But uh, yeah, all of us thinking about the East Coasters. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about uh, the case of the WNBA star who's being held in Russia, Brittany Griner. Uh, what what can we read into this from a political level? I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. 
today with special guest host Tamara Cherry. Hi, I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon this week. I've been here for a few weeks over the last month. This one is my last for now. So thanks for having me. Always appreciate you listening and calling in. The story that we were talking about uh, last week, I believe it was last week, I cannot keep track of time these days, but WNBA star Brittany Griner, uh, hers is a name that you likely didn't hear a lot about in terms of the political realm up until about a month or so ago when it was revealed that she was being held uh, in a Russian prison cell after being detained at the airport with uh, vaping paraphernalia for lack of a better term uh in her in her luggage or in her carry-on bag uh Brittany Griner had uh ad- admitted to this she had earlier um earlier than last week she had put in a guilty plea saying that yes she did this but hoping for leniency at the sentencing stage well last year or last week rather Brittany Garner was uh sentenced to nine years in Russian prison but we knew that uh that this, you know, <laughs> this sentencing meant very little. That Brittany Griner is essentially being held as a political pawn. We're going to have, uh, we're hopefully going to have a guest on by the name of Declan Hill any moment now. We don't have Declan on the line yet, do we? Okay, just by way of a little bit of background, uh, Brittany Griner has been in in custody in Russia since earlier this year. She is a WNBA star. One thing interesting to consider in this, and I I heard an interview about this not too long ago, pointing out the fact that WNBA players are paid much less than their male counterparts, and as a result, many of them end up going overseas during the offseason. Now, speaking on August 4th, WNBA superstar Brittany Griner said she had no intention of breaking Russian law after a small amount of cannabis oil was found in her, found in her bags. Craig, uh, Chris, can you play clip one, please? My parents taught me two important things. One, take ownership for your responsibilities. And two, to work hard for everything that you have. That's why I play guilty to my charges. I understand everything that's being said against me, the charges that are against me, but I had no intent to break any Russian law. She went on to say this. I want to apologize to my teammates, my club, Genka, the fans and the city of ECAT for my mistake that I made and the embarrassment that I brought onto them. Griner says that she made an honest mistake. I made an honest mistake and I hope that in your ruling, that it doesn't end my life here. I know everybody keeps talking about political pawn and politics, but I hope that that is far from this courtroom. Yeah, well, we are talking about political pawn because that does seem to be exactly what Brittany Griner is at this point. Uh, you know, we had heard from the uh, American officials that they had come to a decision about offering up a trade to Russian officials. Uh, they they were potentially talking about trading um somebody who had been referred to as the merchant of death. He was a global arms dealer in exchange for Brittany Griner, as well as another American citizen who is being held in Russia. Well, here to break this all down for us now is Declan Hill, an investigative academic and journalist. He specializes in the study of organized crime, international issues, and international sports. Declan, thanks for taking the time today. No, Tamara, it's an honor to be with you and our listeners. 
So we just heard Brittany say in that clip that, um, you know, we she's been hearing political pawn thrown around a lot. Understandably so, no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is, you know, this is a lesson for our listeners is that the Cold War is back and that, you know, this joyful time that we had of, of, of carefree travel around the world is now over. And she, you know, she was silly enough to make a stupid mistake, and it's landed her in you know, the center of this geopolitical consequences. I, I appreciate that she's a major basketball star, but really that has very little to do with it. This is the, the right person at exactly the wrong time in the wrong place. Yeah, and, and you said a silly mistake, but do you think the fact that she was so ho- high profile, I mean, that must have played into why they picked her. Could, would the, or could this have happened to any traveler coming over from the I, U.S.? I think it could have happened to any traveler. And again, I want to get back to our essential lesson for our listeners is that now is the time if you're traveling to communist China or to Russia to be very careful. This isn't 1995 or 2005 or even, frankly, 2015 anymore. This is the mm-hmm. time when there is political symbolism in you know, taking hold of a Canadian or American citizen who makes a silly mistake on their travels in these countries. So, um, you know, be careful. And she was really, you know, this was, you couldn't have designed the time, you know, worse. It was two days before the Russian invasion, and she was caught justifiably. I mean, she was bringing in to Russia cannabis vapes, which are legal in North America, but are utterly illegal in Russia. And... You know, you know, she was guilty of what they charged her with. She admits that. She admits her mistake. Um, but it is a really, really harsh sentence, uh, deliberately put down there uh, in a Russian penal colony. I've seen those Russian penal colonies. They are not for the weak. They are not for, uh, you know, uh, uh, decent human beings um, uh, unless they have a desire to get tortured. They are really, really harsh places. Declan Hill, you, you've said that this is a small chess piece on a larger geopolitical chess game. Expand on that. Well, look, um, you know, it's being sold in, in, in our media that this is something to do with sports and basketball, um, um, and, and it's not. I mean, it, it, it literally is the, the, the symbol of a Canadian or American traveler now in this new Cold War era. And really that new Cold War, the one that we thought would got rid of, you know, as the Berlin Wall collapsed, has returned with a vengeance for the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, that's my lesson for any of our listeners now. It's when you're packing to go to these countries or, or frankly, any country with a dangerous, you know, critical political situation going on now. This ain't, you know, five years ago. It's the Cold War. You can be taken hostage in these in these places if it, you know, if it if it suits those political masters at, at this time. Hmm. How do you think uh, Canada and the U.S. have been behaving when it comes to Russia? And I mean, you meant you mentioned China, too. It's it's quite the world we're living in right now. Very similar issues. Yeah, look, I, I think the one silver lining that that I see in all these negotiations and all this you know, kind of political posturing and and virtue signaling going on around this scandal is that the Russians have revealed that there is a direct hotline between Putin, Vladimir Putin, and Joe Biden. And I'm really heartened by that because there's been a lot, there's been far too much 
um, particularly with this kind of nuclear um, showdown stuff of people posturing and all kinds of public declarations. Canadian diplomats, I think, have made have embarrassed themselves by walking out of international conferences when their Russian counterparts start to speak. Uh, you know, it's childish kindergarten stuff, and it's it really puts the rest of us at risk. Diplomats are there to negotiate. They're there to 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 bring peace in difficult times. They're not there to do childish nonsense, which frankly the Canadians and some American diplomats have engaged in uh, over the last few months after the invasion of Russia. De- Declan, we just have 30 seconds left. We just have 30 seconds left. I just want to ask you quickly. Do you think that Please. Putin will take this deal that, that Biden is offering up with the merchant of death in exchange for Brittany Griner and and uh, the other U.S. citizen? Yeah, I think there will be, but there'll be uh, a number of covert clauses thrown in as well. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't have any idea what those might be, but I'm pretty sure there'll be some other clauses thrown in. But I would expect that sometime in the next six weeks, this issue will be uh, covertly and quietly dealt with by the two superpowers. All right. I hope so. Declan Hill, investigative academic and journalist. Thanks so much for taking the time. Tamara, thank you. It's always an honor to be on the program. Wonderful. Coming up after the break, we will be speaking with Carol Todd. Carol, of course, is the mother of 15-year-old Amanda Todd, who died by suicide in 2012. Well, the man who was was guilt was the man who led to her suicide was uh, was convicted over the weekend uh, in a sextortion case that has been a long time in the making. He had been extradited from the Netherlands. We're going to be speaking with Amanda Todd's mother, Carol, after the break about Amanda's legacy and and what she hopes what what she hopes will will spur in terms of changes in the in the months and years to come. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello and thank you for joining us. I am Tamara Cherry. Just a a warning to our listeners that this next segment is going to be talking about the issue of sextortion. And I want to throw that warning out there because... I know uh, from personal experience, people in my own life and and people I've talked about, people I've read about in the news, that this is a growing problem in this country and countries around the world that families are being faced with. And it is a problem that, unfortunately, our next guest has has become uh, very uh, intimately aware of in uh, recent years. Before we get to our next guest, though, just uh, a refresher on some news from over the weekend. A Dutch man accused of tormenting British Columbia teen Amanda Todd via online threats has been found guilty of all charges. This happened on Saturday. These are charges that he faced in connection with the case. The verdict came after seven weeks of testimony involving dozens of witnesses, exhibits and evidence presented by Crown prosecutors prior to the start of closing arguments. And it is worth noting that the man that we are talking about, Aidan Coben, his defense lawyer, did not call any evidence in the trial. On the line with us now is Carol Todd, mother of 15-year-old Amanda Todd, who died by suicide on October 10th, 2012. Carol, I know, I can imagine it's been such a roller coaster of emotions for you over the last few days. Thank you for much, very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. 
Carol, can you just start out by telling us about Amanda? Remind us of, of what kind of girl she was, what kind of daughter she was. I think it's easy for us to forget that there are people at the center of these cases, especially when they're so technical in these trials. Oh, the trial was really technical. Um, you know what? When when you introduced Amanda, and she's forever 15, and if she were alive today, she'd be 25, turning 26 in this coming November. Um mm. I remember her, and, and all of us remember her um, as a, a vibrant young teenage girl who loved shopping, who loved makeup, who loved socializing, and what she wanted most was um, friends who she who, who cared about her, who she could trust, and, and she had a really hard time finding that after victimization. Um, and then the peer-to-peer bullying, cyberbullying happened. Um, I think she lost all her faith in, in humankind at that point. Um, but she was spirited. She was energetic. She loved to sing. She loved physical activity. She loved um, caring about people and especially animals, right? I, I just, she had a mirage of pets in the house while, when she was little. So mm-hmm. we we often forget those things because all we see now is the image of Amanda, right? And so, mm-hmm. and not many people. I, mean, I can say that many of my supporters, almost all my supporters in the courtroom that supported me during the nine weeks of the trial, did not know Amanda personally. What did that mean to you, Carol? Having having all these supporters, having all these people gather around you through this process, because it was. This process, we should point out, it was a long time in the making. This this man was extra, just extradited from the Netherlands in 2020 to face the charges. You've had a long road here. How how has it felt to have that that support around you? Well, it's difficult to explain. Um, I've had support probably from day one um, since Amanda's death and. With when Amanda put her YouTube video out and after she passed away, um, it just, the support actually came worldwide, not just within my, my community of Port Coquitlam, but beyond that, right? Um, and in the trial, people were coming um, to sit and, and be with me and, and to listen um, from, from all over different communities. It was just amazing. Um, so this ending of this chapter, I won't say closure, um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's not closure for me. It's just an end of a section of Amanda's story. Um, but lots of people waiting for this trial to happen and the verdict to come out. And I can say that I, as soon as all the guilty were read out loud and I was able to use my mobile device in that, in that gallery of that courtroom, I posted um, guilty on all five counts and it just went viral right you know i i thank you so much for telling us a little bit about amanda and of course this case was about her but it's it's interesting to think about how much has changed with technology since amanda died and and how much more we're hearing about this stuff now with through instagram and facebook and you know all these different social platforms that teens use that i like i can't help but feel that while this case is about amanda 
uh, that her legacy is going to be about so much more. Do you do you get that feeling that that this will have a ripple effect, that this will send a message and, and hopefully, um, you know, have a positive in, impact in terms of preventing other crimes like this? I believe so. Um, when you when if you rewatch Amanda's video, it tells a lot of different stories, right? It tells about her struggles in school. Um, it talks about bullying and cyberbullying, her mental health, the exploitation she had. So, so we've grasped each little tidbit. Like everyone who watches a video takes away a, a, a different piece of it, right? And throughout the ten years, I've got I've gotten emails and messages from people from all over. As I said, um, parents and young people about their struggles with mental health, their struggles with bullying, their struggles with an online person who's, who's harassing them, who's victimizing them, who's threatening them to send out images that they um, sent out because they trusted the person or thought they trusted. So a lot, of, a lot of education and learning has come out of her story, and a lot of um, resources have also come out um, knowing what happened to Amanda and, and governments have pushed it beyond that. So I think that her story will continue to flow, if you want to call it that. Uh, and changes can and will be made. But you need pushers behind that, right? If, if I don't say anything or someone else doesn't say anything, Amanda's story just becomes quiet. Mm-hmm. And, and then we aren't going to be able to learn anything or push any government legislation through if that's needed. Um, We just have to keep talking about it. And when you talk about technology and how it's changed, yes, it's really changed in 10 years. And that's why the online awareness, the online safety measures, we need to keep talking about them. We need to keep talking to them with parents, with with young people, with law enforcement, with legal counsels because they need to know what they're up against. I hate to say this, but these predators are are wise beyond us. They know how to hide things. Um, they know how to entrap our kids um, with simple questions. And our kids just aren't equipped. And I'm not saying it's anyone's fault that, that they're not equipped. They're young. Their brain development isn't there. They are at mm-hmm. that stage where they just want right and 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 Mm -hmm. immediate gratification so we have to continue to instill the conversation with our kids and talk with them at i guess a an even platform not a not a top-down parent or top-down school teacher um and and wait waggle your finger and kids will just tune you out at that point right um Mm -hmm. so much more needs to be done and we're all going to try and do it together, right? Carol, you're leading the way on this, and I thank you for that. I can't help but think that there are countless people across this country now upon hearing your words that will be having conversations, you know, at eye level with their kids tonight. And when they speak your daughter's name, it will hopefully have a positive impact. So thank you very much, Carol, for sharing a little bit of your daughter, Amanda, with us today and a little bit about your journey. All the best. Thank you. Amanda Todd, it's a name that you've heard before. Keep saying that name, Amanda Todd. Talk to your kids. 
push the pol your politicians to to pay attention to this issue, this extortion issue. It is it is a big one. You know, push social media platforms to the extent that you can. I'm Tamara Cherry. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I am special guest host Tamara Cherry with a very special guest about to join us. Nick Nanos, Chief Data Scientist at Nanos Research is on the line. Nick, how are you doing? Good, Tamara. How's it going? Good, thank you. So we all recall... Uh, Stephen Harper's video that I believe it was Twitter he posted it on. Is that right? Yeah. The, the infamous Twitter video endorsing Pierre Poiliev as the as his preferred candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. Well, it turns out, as you, Nick, and, and your colleagues have figured out, that uh, this might not have helped Pierre Poiliev. And in fact, it might have hurt him. Is that right? Well, you know, if he wants to be prime minister, I don't think it's going to be a big boost, right? Because, you mm -hmm. know, what's clear in the survey that we did for the Globe and Mail, we just asked people, you know, hey, you know, the, what will be the impact of Harper's endorsement on Polyev? Will it make you feel, would you have more a positive or negative impression? And people are, uh, a lot of people say no impact, about 46%. But uh, looking at positive versus negatives, about 35% say there would be a more negative impression and 14% more positive. So no no coattails. How's that? For the for the yeah. general populace. Now, leadership, different different story likely on the on the leadership front. Yeah, because it's not the general population that is voting for the next leader of the Conservative Party. It's it's party members. So so tell us what you found in terms of how it was how it was received by party members. Well, we didn't ask party members, but one thing that we do know was that um younger people were more likely to have a positive impression of it than uh, than older people. And also, we also know that it did, uh, Harp, the Harper endorsement did better in the prairies, which is basically ground zero or the bedrock foundation mm -hmm. for, for the conservative movement in Canada. So, you know, I think, I think it would be fair to say the reality is I don't think any prime minister, any former prime minister, would endorse anyone during a leadership bid unless they really thought that they were going to win. Uh, because you know, if you uh, if you happen to be the leader of a party and you endorse someone that ends up being a loser of the leadership, that's actually bad news not just for the person you've endorsed but for yourself. So I hmm. think one of the big takeaways from here is that at least Stephen Harper believes that Pierre Poiliev not only is the best candidate, but he also likely believes that Pierre Poiliev will win the Conservative Party leadership. So I, I want to unpack something you just said a moment ago, because I find that fascinating that uh, younger people, younger potential voters are more likely to have been impacted positively by Stephen Harper's endorse, yeah. endorsement than older voters. I, I feel like, like I would assume that that would be the other way around. Were you surprised by that? Well, you know, the interesting thing is conservative support. You know, so the liberal support has been unraveling in the last year or so. And what we're seeing is, 
younger voters drifting away from the liberals and actually moving towards the conservatives. And I think a lot of this has to do with a number of things. First of all, the pandemic was difficult for everyone, but especially difficult for younger people who were frontline workers, had to worry about kind of paying the bills and all that kind of stuff, and uh, were healthy and had to deal with all these restrictions on their lives. And at the same time, now these same young people are coming out of the pandemic, and now interest rates are going up. Perhaps we're going to have a recession. The cost for buying groceries is going up. Everything is going up. So, you know, it's I, it, what's what we've seen at least in the last year or so are younger people being more pessimistic, being more negative about the future, being unhappy with how things are. And as a result, some of those younger voters are moving away from from the Liberals and moving towards the Conservatives as a party uh, that's looking to shake things up. And you know what? If you can't pay the rent, you're probably thinking, well, maybe this other person's not perfect, but it can't get any worse. Mm-hmm. Can't pay the rent, can't get into the housing market. It's, I mean, housing prices are coming down now, but the the with interest rates being as sky yeah. high as they are, it's it's becoming even more difficult. And and I guess, I mean, we've been hearing a lot about how Pierre Polyev has really been targeting that younger audience. So I know you haven't polled uh, members of the 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 conservative, you know, Party. membership. Yep. But but how do you think these this uh, these numbers would translate when it comes to voting day just around the corner uh, for the Conservative Party leadership in terms of Stephen Harper's impact on the just given your experience on the on the voting not public but members of the Conservative Party. Well, I think I think uh, I I think uh, you know the the reality is is that a Harper endorsement would be would be positive for anyone that was running for the leadership because what we do see in these numbers is that, you know, in these areas that tend to be more conservative, that the endorsement is more positively viewed upon uh, compared to other regions. The endorsement's also uh, more positively viewed upon if you happen to be male versus female. And, you know, the West and men are two kind of key constituencies that the conservatives do better in. So when we look at, at the types of voters that are more likely to vote conservative, and who actually votes conservative, it kind of aligns with some of these positive numbers. So, you know, I think uh, I think a Harper endorsement is would be, I think any of the leadership candidates would have loved to have had a Stephen Harper endorsement. So this is good news for, uh, this is good news for Polyev, because he's the, he's the person that got the tip of the hat from Stephen Harper. Uh, but the big question is, is what will happen come the next election? Because there will exactly. be other voters, more progressive voters, that would be like, Wow, if Pierre Poiliev is is the person who's looking at turning back the clock, back to uh, 2015 when Stephen Harper was prime minister, this could motivate some voters to come out and vote for uh, vote for the Liberals or for any party that might be able to block Pierre Poiliev if uh, if he ends up being very competitive in the next federal election. So it cuts cuts both ways tomorrow. Yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated. It's, I think it's going to be fascinating to see some of the polls that you come back with once. P- I mean, I shouldn't say once Pierre Poilievre is leader of the Conservative Party. I think that that is seeming more and more inevitable as as each day passes. But once he gets to the point that he actually has to talk policy, because this is this is a, a you know a wannabe leader who has not said hardly anything at all about what his policies will be. Just given your experience in in politics, uh, Nick, um, and polling, do you see if if the day comes if Pierre Poilievre is named the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, do you see him pivoting on anything or? Um, 
you know, kind of changing his stance a little bit so that he can get more of that broad following uh, that he'll need, you know, to go up against Justin Trudeau or whoever might be leading the Liberals at that time. Well, Tamara, what we do know is that there is a winning franchise for the for the federal conservatives, and it's in the name of Doug Ford. Right. You know, Doug Ford, for many Ontarians, when, you know, he was elected because people were tired of the provincial liberals and they'd been in power too long. And uh, and it was kind of like they wanted to punish the liberals and it was time for a change. So we're dealing with a very similar situation. And at that time, people knew that uh, Doug Ford was more of an anti-establishment uh, candidate, like he's a bit of an outsider in some respects, mm-hmm. uh, that he was conservative, like the, he's no kind of progressive liberal or of any sort. He's outright conservative, pro-business, pro-jobs, uh, you know, smaller government. Uh, but you know what he did was uh he managed to he's managed to be consistent to to his ideals but at the same time be pragmatic and i think that's i think that's the winning formula i think everybody no one expects to agree 100% with any politician mm-hmm. period full stop uh but you know what they want to see i think right now is a politician that's pragmatic which means yes you can have uh, have your have your beliefs if you believe in small government so be it but uh, make sure that when you have to make those big decisions that you uh, are not making it based on blind ideology, but it's based on being pragmatic. And I think that's, that's the winning formula. And, and, you know, the same thing applies for the liberals, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, the liberals need to be more pragmatic if they want to attract uh, Canadians and not as ideological. So it cuts both ways. Yeah. All right, Nick Nato. Nick Nanos, thanks for joining us. Nick, of course, is the chief data scientist at Nanos Research. It will be fascinating to watch uh, what happens after, you know, between, I know we're probably a ways away from our next federal election, <laughs> but you never know. Maybe Jagmeet Singh will be annoyed enough with Trudeau to break away from that not coalition coalition and, and move us into election. Who knows? It'll be fascinating to watch, Nick, and I look forward to having another conversation with you at that time. I am Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. You will not want to miss this next segment, an incredible um, rescue out of Alberta involving a cougar and a seven-year-old boy who is alive thanks to a quick-thinking family friend. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, I am Tamara Cherry coming at you from Regina, Saskatchewan. Well, a remarkable story played out just one province west of me between Red Deer and Edmonton, where a family was camping. It sounds like uh, you guys can correct me uh, in, a, in a moment. My next guest can correct me if I'm wrong. But it sounds like there were a, a couple or a few ca- uh, families that were camping together. Uh, and a cougar came along. And thanks to the quick actions of a family friend, a seven-year-old boy's life was likely saved. So online with us right now are Alicia Morrison, the woman who saved that seven-year-old boy named Kaysen Fuser, and Shay Fuser, Kaysen's mom. Uh, Thank you both for joining us. Shay, I want to start with you because I I was just watching during the break, I was watching again a story that that was done about uh, you and and Kaysen and Alicia and see, as the mother of a just turned eight year old boy, it just breaks my heart seeing your little guy. But it's also, I'm so happy that he's okay. How is he doing? 
He is doing remarkable. I can't even believe how well he's doing. It's making us do okay in this whole situation. You know, like mm-hmm. just seeing him, you know, dancing while he brushes his teeth. And, oh, good. You know. <laughs> good. Yeah. We need to have yeah. the dancing during the toothbrushing. That is a good sign. <laughs> and it's remarkable that he's home. Okay, so so let's just go back to, the, this was a week ago Sunday. Uh, Alicia, you were there. Just describe for us uh, what happened. So I was just sitting down to have a cup of coffee um, and the kids were just in front of me about maybe 25 feet away looking for some frogs in the riverbank and um, they were all six of them together and my son was in front of Kaysen and he just kind of started to ask if Kaysen was okay and then he screamed Mm -hmm. and then Kaysen's older sister Addison was a little further up and she turned around and she yelled cougar and I just, I jumped out of my chair and I came kind of in behind where the cougar um, had casein in its mouth um, by his head. Mm. So I just, you know, reacted. I grabbed a rock and I hit it right in the head and it just, it let him go. And my dog chased it away. That is, can we just talk about that for a second? How remarkable it is that you grabbed a rock and were able to hit this cougar in the head. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you reflecting back on that moment, Alicia, as you think back on that? Were you just in like robotic mode? Was this just your, I know you've called it going cave woman style, but <laughs> was this just, are you, have you, have you been practiced in throwing rocks before? Like that is remarkable to me. Are you amazed by what you're able to do? Well, yes, I am amazed because I do play slow pitch and I suck. <laughs> So incredible. Like, and it's funny, like you need, you need a heavier ball and snow, slow pitch apparently. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, it was, it was just, I think it was pure instinct. And I was, you know, reflecting on it with my husband about how that happened. And I just wonder if adrenaline played a part in aim and, and power, I think is super fun. Otherwise it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I wonder. Okay. So Alicia then, so the cougar ran off. Uh, you're a mm-hmm. nurse, I understand. Tell me, tell me what happened next. Sure. So I picked Kaysen up and we ran into the trailer. The kids, the other five kids had already made it into the trailer. I opened the door and took him into the front room of the trailer and the kids were in the other end. And I just uh, grabbed a towel. I wrapped it around his neck and the top of his head. And then I had to get one of the, uh, one of the kids, my 10-year-old niece, uh, Winley, to come and hold pressure while I grabbed my phone, which was happened to be in the trailer. And I put it on the bed and I knew where I had two bars of service and I called 911. And then we just waited 24 minutes and they were, yeah, they came as fast as they could. You, well, they came as fast as you could. I, I'm, I'm just imagining you running around this campsite from, from where this happened to in the trailer and this and that incredible Shay, um, tell me what, what is, has Kaysen gone through since then in terms of medical procedures, what sort of healthcare attention did he require? Yeah. So he got to the Edmonton hospital and, uh, they waited for us to get there before he went in for surgery, went in for three and a half hours of surgery and got a bunch of staples, surgical clamps and stitches all on his head, face, neck, a few on his chest, and one on some on his finger. And then we spent two nights in the hospital just um, keeping him heavy, heavily medicated with morphine mm-hmm. for pain and mm-hmm. antibiotics. 
and just monitoring his vitals. But by Tuesday, he was um, wanting to go home. And the doctor said, if he can be well enough to sustain the pain on Advil, we could go home. And so we took him off morphine uh, Monday afternoon to see how he did. And he seemed to be okay. We just kept up on his Advil. And the doctor said, yeah, like you guys can go. Uh, if you need anything, go straight to Emerge, obviously, uh, in Red Deer. But we haven't mm-hmm. needed to. He's been like, he's been doing so good. We've been keeping up on the polysporin on all of his um, cuts and um, just keeping up on the Advil and the um, antibiotics. Had, had you guys talked uh, about cougars before? Like, is he is he aware of of what exactly this animal is and and that, that inflicted this harm on him? No, not really. Like we didn't, we haven't really talked about cougars, maybe bears. Like mm-hmm. he, he didn't, he was very confused as to what got him. Like before he went into surgery, he's like, can you show me a picture of what got me? Wow. And so I didn't have my phone on me. So I asked the nurse and she's like, she's like, yeah, yeah, here. And she like shows him a picture and he's like, ah, couldn't have been that big. Didn't get me. Or it didn't kill me. He said. And I wow. was like, no, it didn't get you, buddy. <laughs> oh, he's saying this before he's even going into yeah. surgery. Yeah, laying on the bed with all the tubes in him, and he was saying, "Oh, that. this must have just warmed your heart." Uh, oh. I mean, I, yeah, you're in such a vulnerable position as a mom. Yeah, mm-hmm. and to see that he's doing okay mentally—that's a huge hurdle yeah. for you to overcome. Oh yeah. Wow. Uh, what are what are you guys? You guys are family friends, right? Oh yeah, we're close. Yeah. So I imagine there's more camping trips uh, to come. What are you, I I mean, are you going to pack some like big boulders with you, Alicia, next time? Are you going to like, are you going to bring a baseball bat? What what, are you camping in like downtown Calgary? for the next five years. <laughs> and they've got some nice green space there. You can bring your tube and go on the Bow River as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to stay away from the West for a little while. Our, what, what is your message? What is your message to other people who might be camping in Cougar territory? There's really nothing. Like, she was so prepared. You know, she had a gun in the trailer. There was She was by a busy road. There was other trailers there. There was a bunch of them. She had her dogs. Like the fish and wildlife keeps saying like, this is like not, it's so out of characteristic for cougars. Like they, yeah. they don't like humans. They try and run yeah. away from humans, you know, like they don't usually hunt during the day. They said, it's oh, just it's something, just... one of those things that you couldn't have avoided. I mean, we, no. we see these videos and stuff of people who are, are jogging and they come in, in contact with a cougar and all this. But anyway, I am just so happy that, that not only is little Kaysen doing well physically and and recovering yeah. at home, but mentally as well. That's just got to be so great for you, Shay. And uh, yeah. Shay, Alicia, thank you so much for, for joining us in the last segment of the show, which is always, we try to make it a happy segment. And this certainly is, <laughs> it, it, it very well couldn't have been, but, but yeah. thank you both. And, and best of luck to little case and tell them, Keep on with those moves while he's yeah. teeth. I'd love to see a video of that. <laughs> thanks, ladies. Have a great day. Hey, thanks. Thank you. Bye. I, I'm Tamara Cherry filling for in for Evan Solomon this week. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Chris, technical producer, Sam, producer of the show, making all the magic happen. And on the phones, we had Tony today. Thanks to everybody. I'll be back tomorrow.